word this morning. James chapter 2, I'm going to be reading verses 8 through 13. James chapter 2, 8 through 13, we're looking at community, a Christ-filled, Jesus-based community, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged according, judged, excuse me, under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, I've thought a lot about the law this week. Anytime I'm looking at scripture, which is also called the law of God, but anytime the scripture is talking about the law of God, it takes some intense study to try to clarify what's going on. We are people in the new covenant who have been saved by grace. And so how are we supposed to involve ourselves with the law now as believers? Well, I think James draws it very, very clearly for us that we are still supposed to obey the law of love as a Christian community. I love the law of God because it is clear. The Bible is inherently clear as God's holy book. And it's clear for us that we are to be saved by grace, but obedient to the law of God. Now, when I think of the law of God, I think of law-keeping and law-breaking. When I think of law-keeping and law-breaking, I think of my kids. Now, you know, not to put them on the spot, but I just put them on the spot. I think of my kids, and I think of law-keeping and law-breaking. And I have now six law-keeping and more law-breaking members in my family as our tribe has grown to six kids. And you know that. And uh, I was thinking about in our history, Judy and my history, uh, the fact that we just used to have two kids. We had one, then we had two. And we lived in an apartment for a time as we were transitioning from a house we had bought to a house we were building. And we're in this apartment, and I was just reminded of this morning that we had where it was about five in the morning, and we heard this noise, this sort of hustle and bustle in the kitchen, and it was a strange noise, a curious noise. So we went to investigate, went into the kitchen. And to our great surprise, our kitchen floor had been turned into a Hershey Syrups ice skating rink. And our kids were slipping and sliding backwards and forward. And what was amazing to me is they didn't just stop. They just wanted us to join in the fun. And they continued to squirt Hershey Syrup, one in each hand, all over the floor. Riley was much younger at the time, and Logan was even younger. Logan was probably about Brady's age at the time, and Riley was about five. But they were just drenching the floor, and Riley remembers this actual occurrence. And what, it, what stood out to me is that they were clearly law-breaking at that point. I mean, there was, there was no sort of ambiguity as to whether they were in the right or in the wrong. They had clearly crossed a line of family law. Brady is round two of this for us. Um, Judy has been making brownies for us for some reason, and 
Brady has absconded or stolen away a half a pan of brownies about three different times last week. I don't know what he's doing with these brownies, but I think he's imbibing them and enjoying them, and he's continuing to break the law. But it's okay. I mean, it's just, it's just he might think, you know, I, I don't know for sure if I'm supposed to do this or not, but we know as parents that he is crossing the line. And it's kind of an example of, of how we live with the law. Sometimes we think that we're halfway obeying, but our halfway obedience is really full-on disobedience, is it not? For instance, when we tell the children, hey, clean up your room, and if the socks and different articles of clothing just get shoved under the bed or even on top of the sheets and then the covers get pulled over so that the bed kind of looks like, you know, a a raised three-dimensional map of Alaska, that's not full obedience, right? It's not. And this is James's point here. He's saying that to obey the law, all of the law, is for sure not to be someone who's playing favorites in church. Church is not a popularity contest. Church is the family of God. Race, gender, social status all go away in a gospel, Jesus-based community. And actually what James is doing here is he's moving from a scenario where the rich or the people who had gained more money even illegally or by abusing the poor, that they were being made the favorite in the church instead of the poor. And he's moving from this scenario and zeroing in on the fact that this is breaking a law. And it's breaking a law that was written by Moses in Leviticus 19, not to show partiality, but to love your neighbors yourself. And he's bringing it forward into the New Testament church and saying, listen, This wasn't just an Old Testament law for Israel. This is for God's people in this age as the church. And I would say it's for us today in Anchorage. It is what James is calling in verse 8, the royal law for us today. And so to to find this law as something that's going to apply deeply to our hearts, we need to understand what it demands. We're going to look at three demands of this Law. What does it demand? We want the law to chip away like an ice chipper and get beneath the surface into our hearts. And we want to see what it's demanding here. And the first thing it demands is love. The law demands love. When Jesus redefined the law of God saying, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I came to live the law. He came as a savior saying that the law is to be obeyed from the heart as a law of love. And in fact, verse 8 is giving some hope here that the law actually can be obeyed if your heart is breaking with love for other people. You can actually fulfill the law through love. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. Now, there's a note of sarcasm here from James, a hint of sarcasm where he's saying, if you would really do this, in other words, they really weren't quite doing it at the end of verse 8, you would be doing well if, if you would do this. What is he calling the church to do? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
They calls this law the royal law for a couple reasons. It's royal because it's coming from the king. Jesus, when he was confronted by a Pharisee who was a lawyer, said, what is the greatest law? Out of all the laws of the Pentateuch, which one stands head and shoulders above the rest? Actually, in Matthew 22, 39 and following, you could read that that lawyer was trying to trip Jesus up. It's a mistake because Jesus knew the answer. He pointed to Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage, and said, Look, the greatest law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hangs the entire corpus of the law. Loving God with everything you got and then loving people as quickly as you would love yourself. Not loving people out of some sort of pop psychology where you have to love yourself first. Ooh, I need to feel ooey-gooey, rich and chewy about myself before I can love somebody else. Not that, but being selfless, having a heart for God, being in awe of God, and then being selfless where you love other people. You see people's needs. When you do that, then all of a sudden, the outflow of that is you're actually obeying the law of God in totality. The law, in other words, is not a book of rules and policies that you can achieve success before God by obeying it in performance. The law of God is the evidence of a transformed heart, right? Do you get that? It's where God has broken your heart for himself and for other people, and all of a sudden you find yourself fulfilling the law of God. Jesus, he doesn't strike me in his ministry as a man who was a law keeper, as much as a God lover and a people lover. Now, he was aware of the law, but he found himself fulfilling the law. And he said of himself that he didn't come to do away with the law. Not one jot or tittle of the law should be passing away, but he came to fulfill the law of God, and he did. Even when he came and said to John the Baptist, baptize me, and John saying, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal." And Jesus said to him, permit it now that I might fulfill all righteousness. It's an act of love. He wanted to obey the Father. He wanted to magnify God by obeying the Lord. And that's what we are called to do. A lot of people want to wriggle out of the law and they want to say, look, you know, the Bible now is just a love letter. It's, it's, it's not objective. But James is saying, no, 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 it's objective. And it goes all the way to the heart. As John Stott put it, when Jesus was saying that unless your righteousness will exceed the scribes and Pharisees, you will not receive the kingdom of God, John Stott said, look, what he's talking about is not doing more and more of the law, but going deeper and deeper in your obedience to the law. And that's what James is calling the church to do. Do you want that kind of depth in your life, in your ministry? Do you want the law to be stirring up in your heart this love? I hope that's the case. I hope that you want to be stirred for people. So that the law, like an like a ice chopper, you can tell Judy and I, we were chopping ice yesterday. You know, we were trying to clean off our driveway because somehow the sun doesn't hit our driveway and it hits everybody else's in our court. And so we were doing that, and I was just thinking, it's like the law, just, you know, just breaking away chunks of, of ice that form in our hearts. And what we want to find there is a heart that's melted in love for people. That's what we need to be known as, as the church here 
God's local expression of his kingdom. Well, it's called the royal law because it's from the king, and it's also called the royal law because these two laws, loving God and loving your neighbor, are sovereign over all the rest of the law. Reminds me of where Moses was talking to Edom when he was negotiating the children of Israel wandering through the land of Edom. And he said, look, in Numbers chapter 20, 17, we're going to take the royal highway. We're not going to veer from the right or to the left. This is the royal highway for us as a church, following God, fulfilling the whole law. Again, look at the command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize that you automatically love yourself? A lot of psychology wants to teach us that we really need to get into ourselves before we can release love to other people. We need to sort of, you know, climb some sort of psychological self-esteem ladder before we can spill over onto other people. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit, as he writes in this Bible to us, says that we should assume that we automatically meet our own needs automatically. I mean, you, you went to sleep last night, most of you. You woke up, you took care of yourself, you, you fed yourself, you clothed yourself. I mean, we automatically take care of ourselves. It's kind of a law of self-preservation. We don't have to worry about that, but what we have to do is take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on other people. And then when we look to other people's needs, you'll find that the joy and satisfaction comes back to you in that way. We don't want to reverse the process. In Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, Paul is calling husbands to love your wives self-sacrificially and to actually wash them with the water of the word of God. And he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 5, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, the picture is enjoining yourself to someone else, meeting their needs and loving them as much as you would love yourself. That's not just supposed to happen in the home. That's supposed to happen here with each other. Seeing people's needs as quickly as you would see your own need. And when you do that, the gospel's on display and you're living in a love community with other people. Love fulfills the whole law and also partiality or favoritism breaks the whole law. I was preaching this sermon last night to my daughter before she went to bed, Riley, and Riley said, oh yeah, you're talking about how the Bible doesn't allow for a popularity contest in the church. I said, oh, I'm going to use that, and so I just did. But anyway, yeah, it's not making a popularity contest out of the church. Partiality, verse 9, it says, but if you show partiality, partiality is literally receiving the face. It's seeing someone and receiving them because of how they look over against someone else. It's forbidden in Leviticus 19.15. That's where it first appeared in the Old Testament. And it was also given as a law in the Old Testament under the same idea that you were to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus defined the neighbor as the man who was cast aside where the religious people just walked on by. And the least likely person who was going to meet that person's need was a Samaritan. There was a racial barrier. He said, I don't care. I see a need and I'm going to meet the need. And that's what he did. Who is your neighbor? It's anyone who's in need. Well, the church was ignoring these needs and they were guilty of, look at verse 9, committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. 
To commit sin, the word sin literally, literally means to miss the mark. It's like the archery class that meets here during the week as, as a school activity when someone shoots the arrow and misses the center mark on the target. That's what this sin is before God. It's missing the mark. God sets it up for us and there are people in need and when we don't hit the target, we're sinning. Or he's drawn a line that we transgress or go beyond where God says we're to put on love at this point and we cross the line into our own self-centeredness. It happens, doesn't it? It does. And I'm glad that the scripture is clear and that the scripture approaches this sin with a law. Because I think people try to excuse themselves and make excuses that, look, this is not that big of a deal. This is not that bad. But in essence, if you're not a loving person, then you're really going to be disobeying all the other laws. You're going to be someone tempted to hate somebody else, which is murder. You're going to be someone who is tempted to lust for something or someone that you shouldn't, which is adultery. You're going to be tempted to covet and want something that someone else has. But if you're loving people, then those things go away. You don't want to lie to that person. You don't want to steal to somebody you love. You don't want to take your, your, your neighbor's wife, even in your heart. If you're loving your neighbor, you don't want to do these things. They go away. This was Paul's message in Romans 13. And it's worth just looking over at because it parallels James so well. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 Paul clearly is saying that the law is the law of love. Verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except love each other, for the one who loves another has what? Fulfilled the law. He goes on and lists commandments from the Ten Commandments in verse 9, and then says, All of these are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's all that I've been saying and James says in James 2. Love, verse 10, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. There it is. Well, the law demands love. And what James is saying, in essence, is where I began. If you're sinning a little bit and you call that partial obedience then that really is all the way disobedience. There's no middle ground. And the, point, and the next point further sinks this in because the law not only demands our love or our hearts, it also demands perfection. The law demands perfection, verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It's a very unnerving concept to think that the law is really indivisibly bound together. In other words, if you break one law, you're really breaking all of the law. You can't have a little leaven because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. A little contamination will spoil the whole lot. A little bit of sin before God's holiness will keep you out of his presence, right? And so that's why God's law is showing us that in such an acute way. The law is indissolubly linked. If you have one sinful attitude, then it's going to bleed into several other sinful attitudes. The law, in essence, cannot be out 
performed. You can't say, look, all right, I've got it. I've, I've done it. I've, I've covered everything. All my bases are covered, so I got it. No, the law will get you in one way or another. If you sin in one sin, like partiality or favoritism, you are sinning against the whole law. This kind of came clear to me when I thought about something that, again, my kids were up to. Um, this was when we moved into our house that we moved into up here, where we actually you know, sealed the deal, moved into the house, and I went to work the next day, and Judy went to, I think, Target or something with the kids and came back. And we have uh, our back doors to our backyard, our thermal glass paned doors. It's actually one door that opens, the other one that sits there and looks like it should open but doesn't. And uh, the door that opens, it's uh, thermal, plane, thermal pane glass. And when she came home, it was completely shattered. When I say shattered, it was still in the frame, but it was completely uh, a spider web of cracks throughout, which is disconcerting to come home to, right? You think, man, breaking and entering a failed attempt, or was it a successful attempt? Was it a moose attempt? I don't know. You know, what's happened to this glass? And then she began to say, well, perhaps the kids, when I was looking the other way, came in and broke the glass. You know, we do have some professional breaking children, um, especially our twins. So she began to vet the children and, and talk to Brady. He said, you know, no, I have nothing to do with this. Carson, who didn't do it, but said, because he has a tender conscience and he's a wild man, Yes, mom, I did it. You know, I, I broke the glass, but he didn't break the glass. What, what happened was, is the night before, I know, that's him. Hey, the night before, the kids were swinging the door, probably more the younger kids, were swinging the door, opening the door over and over again. And we have these little sort of hinge buffers that keep the door at 90 degrees, so it's not swinging beyond that. But as it was being swung Early on that first night, and I was saying, please don't swing the door, you know, like that, because you're going to break the door. Well, actually what happened is a small crack, and the hypothesis and theory is is that a small crack was formed by swinging the door too aggressively in the frame of the door, where the glass is hidden inside, and that crack began to invade the rest of the pane of glass. And that's a picture of breaking the law. People might say, but, 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 I, you know, I maybe I'm a little partial to this person over against that person, but I've never committed adultery. I've not, I've not murdered anybody. I've not done this. I've not done that. I've, you know, I've stolen from anybody. I haven't violated this law or that. You know what James is saying? He's saying what Jesus says. This is a weightier matter of the law. Matthew 22, Jesus said to the Pharisees, listen, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. You, you maybe are tithing. You're maybe doing some, some, some perfunctory things within the church, but you've neglected mercy and justice and faithfulness. These are the weightier matters of the law. And James is saying the same thing. If you're being partial to people, if you're, if you're hurting someone, then you're really murdering them in your heart. The law cannot be outperformed. Well, the law also cannot be outsmarted. Look at verse 11. He said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you can't outsmart the law. You can't outperform it. 
you, if you sin a little bit, you're, you're sinning against the whole thing. And you can't outsmart it. You can't say, I, I didn't do this. Maybe I did that, but I didn't do this. And James is saying, no, you don't understand. We're going on a heart level and an attitude level. And if you're hurting people or being mean to people, that's murder. If you're lusting, that's adultery. In James 4, James winds these all together when he confronts the church because the church was quarreling. Ten years beyond the resurrection, they're quarreling and there's infighting going on. And he says, you're warring within you with passions, you're fighting. And then in verse 3, he says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And he says, you adulterous people, you're a murderer, verse, 10, verse 2, James 4, 2. And then in verse 4, he says, you're adulterous. And he, he binds these offenses together and packages them on an attitudinal level. That's where obedience to the law is won and lost in terms of our hearts. There's a demand for perfection, but the demand for perfection is to show us that we can't keep the law. We can't outperform it. We can't outsmart it. It's got us. And it turns us to lean into the gospel and trust in the grace of God. And the fact that he softens our hearts and he enables us to be able to love in the first place. And to be able to be merciful to people in the first place. That's the call of grace. You know, I, I wonder oftentimes if people are trusting in grace alone for salvation when they come to me for counseling. A couple came to me uh, recently and I sat with them and I just asked them, I said, you know, sort of asked them the evangelism explosion question. If you were standing before holy God on judgment day and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You ever heard that question? And the young man that sat there just sort of stared at me for a while. I asked him that question. What would you say to God? He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And he just sat there in stunned silence. And I thought to myself, uh-oh, you know, this, this is going to be an opportunity for me to like coach him or bring up the gospel and bring him along. But his stunned silence was not him wondering what to say, but the fact that he was overwhelmed by what he was about to say. And that was where he began to say, you know, I really don't have a good answer for why a holy God would ever allow me to enter into his kingdom. Then he sat there for another stunned sort of long pause and silence, and I'm just sitting there waiting, thinking, okay, do I now give him the answer for why God could let him into his heaven? And then he said, except for grace, I could not enter into God's heaven. Only grace. Only grace. And then he said this, and it really began to affirm his relationship to the Lord to me. He said, all I want to do is worship God now so that one day I'll be worshiping him forever in eternity. Those statements, I mean, kind of revealed that under his external appearance is a heart that was beating for God. This gal that was sitting next to him said something very similar to what he said, where she said, listen, again, long pause, long silence, but she just said, I too can't, can't imagine why God would let me into his heaven except for the cross of Jesus Christ. What he did for me on my behalf, the grace that was given to me. And I just was 
overwhelmed and thankful I had asked the question and thankful to see life in their hearts. Because the law is overwhelming when rightly perceived, but the law is not meant to ultimately crush us away from God. It's to crush our self-dependence. It's to crush our self-righteousness. It's to expose our sinfulness and to launch us towards the cross and grace. So the law, it demands love. Secondly, the law demands perfection. And thirdly, the law demands mercy. Mercy in verse 12, it's redefining the law of God. It's expanding the law of God. Look at what James says in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Under the law of liberty. He begins by bringing up the act of speaking. And he's talked a lot about the fact that people have sinned with their tongues, right? In James 1, 26, he says that you need to bridle your tongue. And if you don't do that, then you're not practicing pure and undefiled religion. He talks in James two sixteen in terms of speaking, where he says, the one who says to them, go in peace, hey, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? That kind of heartless speak, that speech that people use where they say, oh, you know, they'll be fine. I've already talked about in James 2, speaking, saying to the rich person or the person who has the wealthy appearance, um, you sit here, and to the poor person, the person walking in off the streets, hey, you stand in the back, or you sit under my feet as a footstool. Sit on the dirt. That's the sin of ungodly speech, unmerciful speech. And so James is saying again, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. They calls the law the law of liberty here because he's tying the law to the gospel. It's the law of love we've seen. It's a law that demands perfection. It's a law that we can't obey in our own strength. But for us, as believers, we are comforted because we know the law of liberty. We have bound ourselves to the lawgiver, have we not? We know him and we love him and we are enslaved to him. And that is freedom for us in our lives. We want that kind of enslavement. Just like we want the laws of our land, we want people to obey the speed limit at some level. We want people to not be inebriated when they drive, right? We're thankful for the laws of our municipality that govern our society, that keep us out of anarchy. And in the same way, we are thankful for the law of liberty where we have come under what God demands of us and we have found great freedom to live it out because God changed our hearts to want to obey him, right? So many people in the evangelical church now are just throwing out the Bible, Oh, they say they still want the Bible, but they say, you know, you really can't understand it all the way. You can't really know what it's teaching about eternity, really. You can't know if there's an eternal heaven or eternal hell for certain anymore. You'll hear this message in the evangelical church, and I warn you, it's out there. Hey, let's just make Christianity a mystery and a vagary. But no, the law is clear. The Bible has inherent clarity and it's given to us so that we can obey its laws out of a transformed heart. That's what it's there for. James chapter 2. We're supposed to speak and act 
being under this gospel law. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You have two kinds of people in the judgment day. You have people who stand before the great white throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 20. And they are judged according to their deeds. The books are opened. And people are judged. And they're judged not just because of what they did wrong, but they're also judged in terms of what they didn't do. If you're not a merciful person, it means something about you on this side of eternity. If you are a merciful person, you know what it means? It means that God has transformed your heart. And that's what James is saying. You either are standing in judgment with a person who, as a person who's had a transformation in their heart, where you had become a merciful person before that judgment day. Otherwise, you're standing before God, ready to be judged, because God never transformed your heart. You never repented of your sins, and you never became a merciful person. We can't be merciful enough to earn our way to heaven, but mercy is a clear indication as to whether or not you were saved before Judgment Day. For believers, we stand before God at the Bema Seat Judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and it's a sobering judgment where we are judged according to our deeds, according to good and evil that we've done. But you know what? It's not a judgment of condemnation, Right? Praise Lord. Hallelujah. We are not going to be judged. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And being in Christ Jesus means that God made you a mercy giver in this life. And so there's no judgment. But for the ones who are merciless, they are shown no mercy. You know, you're going to be standing before God one day, but before that time, you're going to stand before people that you have to show mercy to. God's going to test you. This is what I believe from this scripture, that you're going to be tested. And God's going to expose you for where you really are spiritually by giving you a test as to whether or not you're going to be merciful to someone that by human standards And by all sort of rational reasoning, you should not show mercy to. Have you ever been in that situation? Where someone is standing before you or in your life, there's a circumstance where you are called by God to show mercy to someone that by the world's standards, by everybody else around you that would be part of that conversation, they would be telling you that person does not deserve your mercy. And you're called to give it. Nevertheless, and when you are merciful to that person or those people, you know what happens? God's glory is splashed all around and the gospel of God's grace, the law of liberty, the law of freedom is put on display. And you're given a promise. Jesus in Matthew 5, 7 said this, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Do you want mercy in the judgment day? Then you have to be merciful now out of a transformed heart. God gives us mercy now for us to be merciful to other people. And when you are merciful to other people, 
you are showing this strong indication that one day when you stand before God in judgment day, you will be shown mercy because you are a believer in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the law of God. We don't want to be those who are self-elevating or self-reforming or self-justifying or self-focusing. We want to be others-focused. We want to love people and esteem them higher than ourselves. We want to be like Christ who, though he was in heaven, experiencing the riches of heaven, took upon the form of a servant, had the attitude of a slave, and was obedient to go to the cross and die, be buried and rise again. And I pray that that example of humility would be infused into our minds and into our church body and so that we would be a church that esteems other, others higher than ourselves where we would love and welcome people all around because of the gospel of grace. We thank you for this word on this day and I pray God that we would live it and apply it with all of our hearts in Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand for our final dismissal. A few words as we get ready to leave. If you're looking for the take-home points today, I kind of prayed through them, but they're on the table on a sheet, or you can get them online um, for application. I believe my outline is attached to that as well um, for your meditation and to help you study the Word, but want to offer that to you if you need baptism, if you need to come for salvation, if you would like me to pray with you this morning. I'll be up front. Would love to have that time with you. I would love to see the waters of our baptistry stirred soon and to have evidence of transformation that's going on in our midst. And I would just encourage you this week, be salt and light in the world and love other people. Have a great day.